Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, are you okay? That's the question a lot of parents ask their children in conversation, hoping for a clear-cut answer. But as reality goes, and as history has taught us, it is usually met with a grunt or a quick, I'm fine. But with mental health being a bigger importance today, we're going to be looking into some strategies for families to address their child's mental health that builds trust and comfort in a household. Now to help us with this topic is clinical psychologist and researcher, Dr. Paul Sanseri. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Well, thank you, Dina. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's so good to get to talk to you, especially when it comes to children mental health. I feel like it's something that we are very much starting to advocate for a whole lot more in this day and age. So having this on a topic and having learning, teaching parents as to how to have that conversation with a child, I think it's so important. Now, as you work as a clinical psychologist, what is your role in the discussion of a child's mental health for parents to understand it? Well, I do pretty much exclusively family therapy. So the kids that I work with are those who have pretty serious mental health conditions. So depression, anxiety, self-harm or suicide. The, the kids that come to our clinic for care are those who have had quite a bit of extensive prior mental health care. I've developed a model of family treatment called intensive family-focused therapy. We do family work in that way based on our experiences working with everybody because there's about 40 years of research that shows when you work with an entire family, that's actually one of the most effective interventions. Mm -hmm. And what is the most common frustration parents claim that they are experienced with their child? Oh my gosh, there there's so many of them. Um, probably at the top of my list, not knowing what's going on with their kid, knowing that we're in the middle of a mental health epidemic and that parents aren't sure whether their kids are going to be suffering from that. You know, and, and they hope that that doesn't happen. But sometimes with teenagers, they're not always the most communicative with their parents. They tend to keep a lot of things to themselves. And so that leaves parents in a position where they're just guessing all the time. And that often is terrifying. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think I remember being a teenager and just never wanting to express anything, knowing that I pretty much think I trusted my friends a whole lot more than I trusted my parents with a lot of conversations that were happening and a lot of different changes that were happening in my life, a lot of growing. So yeah, I think having that as a as a discussion, I think is also going to help parents try to sort of open up that connection a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. And what, I did the same thing when I was a teenager. I was way more interactive with my friends than I was with my parents. 
the problem is with teenagers, your, your friends are not always the best source of advice or support, right? So these are often people themselves who are struggling with some kind of a mental health condition. Um, but the people who are best positioned to help kids are their parents. And so if they feel they can go to their parents and talk about things and that their parents will listen and not judge them and hopefully give them some good advice, that's what we all want for kids to turn to their parents, not turn away from their parents, which is really common. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a very common thing and it's such a great introduction to our topic today. But before we dive even deeper into it, I'd love to get to know some of your recommendations, even to some of your passions by playing our channel's favorite icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read? Uh, I was on a, a Robert Oppenheimer kick during the summer because the movie came out. And so I decided in advance of seeing the movie, I would read American Prometheus, which is the biography. I thought all of that was completely fascinating. And there's so many aspects to that man's life and what happened at Los Alamos, both before, during, and after. I was just completely swept up into all of this. So that's what my most recent interesting read has been. I loved it. Yeah, I think you and my dad are probably very much into into that genre. I tried to sit through the movie and could not could not get through it. I it's pretty long. much fell asleep throughout quite long. the movie, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your dad nudging you to wake up during this movie. You know what I liked about the movie? It's the first movie that I can think of where physics actually played a leading part. I don't think I've ever seen any movie where physics took such a prominent role. So I, I liked it for that reason too. Yeah, that's probably why I did fall asleep. But, you know, everyone has different interests, so I, I will say yeah. that. Very true. Very true. <laughs> now, so apart from Oppenheimer, what's the movie that you would recommend to our viewers? Uh, I'm into all kinds of different things in the movie. I, like many people, I'm into the Marvel superhero movies, but I don't think I have to recommend that to any, everybody because everybody's watching them anyway. I like a lot of true crime stuff. I like documentaries. Um, it, it, the same weekend I saw Oppenheimer, I saw Mission Impossible, which I loved as well for a completely different reason. <laughs> no, yeah, Mission Impossible was still one of my greatest films that I would ever see with my dad. It's still the most interesting thing that we've seen together, mainly because it's such a, I love the fact that he does his own stunts. I think that's what really changes it for me. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you didn't fall asleep during Mission Impossible, so I'm sure your dad's quite happy about that. Yes. No, I, I stayed very much awake. I was I was very excited to see it. I was excited to see him actually do the stunts on his own. I think that's what kept me awake throughout the whole time. Yeah, he, he, Tom Cruise is very brave. I'll give him all kinds of credit for that. That's just stuff I would never do. I'd be way too scared to do it. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I could not even imagine doing it. Now, to go on, what is a podcast that you find you, that finds yourself standing out in amongst all these other podcasts that come around? Uh, I listen to all kinds of podcasts. Um, some of my favorite would be um, Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I've read everything he's written, at least as far as I know. 
I like no stupid questions. I like um, um, economics radio. I think all of that is really interesting. I love the intersection between economics and psychology. Not a ton of overlap, but the overlap that exists, I think, is extremely interesting. Um, uh, uh, Nobel laureates, I listened to that, hearing folks who won the Nobel Prize and their stories and how they got to be where they are. Those are probably my favorite. No, they sound really they sound really interesting to me. I love the I think I've listened to the Nobel Prize one and having that conversation, hearing their different ways of how they got a Nobel Prize and their different chances. So no, I love listening to things like that, especially when I'm just on the train and just sort of needing just to pass the time. I feel like it's such a great listen. Yeah. Agreed. I do it on the treadmill. That's how I pass the time on when I'm working out and I love it. I love the lifting, not the working out part. I like that's, the working out that's part. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a smart way to get you through the time. It's true. Very true. Now, in, your, in either your professional or your personal life, do you have a person that you find yourself looking up to? Mm, I can think of a couple of people. Um, first person that comes to mind is Frances Hogan. She's the person who used to work for Facebook who was a whistleblower. I think what she did was absolutely courageous and vital. I think she has the potential to change the world. I think Facebook and a lot of the social media apps are complicit and the uh, increase of mental health problems among teenagers. The apps are designed to be addictive and they're quite effective in that way. And it does all kinds of things to kids that are very harmful. And she was brave enough to come forward and talk about them in a very open way. And um, I, I just have nothing but admiration and respect for people who do that. Um, I also respect a psychologist by the name of Martha Lenahan. She was formerly a professor at the University of Washington. She developed a form of treatment called uh, dialectical behavior therapy. It's really big among therapists these days. I admire her because the population of folks that she treated, at least back then, was one that most therapists were were not willing to work with because they were so challenging. It was young women who were chronically suicidal. It, that's a scary group of people to work with. And back then, there were no effective treatment for those folks. And so what Dr. Linehan came up with is something that's now, as I said, become a mainstay of psychology. We all do versions of DBT in our practice. I love her. She's brilliant. Uh, she added so much to the field of mental health. I'm a little critical of DBT only in the sense that it's a very difficult treatment to do, to implement. And I think when folks have tried to scale up DBT into the real world, um, it... Um, has been watered down, at least to some degree, not always, but in, in many cases, that's true. So Linehan is brilliant. Um, I wish DBT were a little bit easier to do, and more people would be doing it in a way that's consistent with what she what she advocated for. No, that sounds, it, it sounds like a very specific group of people that really hold admiration. And I, I love, I love when people sort of speak out about things that aren't supposed to be speaking out for or aren't, especially if they've worked in that sector. For example, her talking about how social media is affecting a child's mental health and teenagers' self-esteem and all of that. I think it's such a great, um, great way to sort of say, this is not that good for you if you take it very seriously. Agreed. I completely agree. 
Now, during your academic pursuit, do you have one course that has really stuck out to you? I liked all my courses in abnormal psychology, as you might expect from somebody who's a clinical psychologist. And I'll tell you a quick story around that. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, my parents got an encyclopedia. Back then, encyclopedias were actual books that were sitting in your bookshelf. And often they would come with um, uh, little additions to that. And in, in this case, it was a tiny little thing uh, on abnormal psychology. It could have been more than 50 or 60 pages long. And I remember grabbing that and sitting down and reading it cover to cover. And I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do for a living. <laughs> just, I, and from that point forward, I've never questioned that. That's obviously the career that I pursued. And I remember talking to my family and my friends, I'm going to become a psychologist and I'm going to work with people with mental illness. Nobody believed me. <laughs> Nobody believed me. So that changed my life. So it's not a, not a course necessarily, but that, that made a huge impact on me. Wow, from 11 to 12, that is such a young age to be able to know and to be able to stick with what you're doing. I mean, a lot of people have the idea of I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that and always changes as you grow up. So to know that that sort of stuck with you and that you knew that that was that important for you to do, I think that's that's very amazing to hear. Yeah, yeah thank you. I've, I've never looked back and it's obviously worked out pretty well for me. No, it obviously has. Now, we're going to be talking into family. And I know that to start off with, everyone has a very different definition as to what family is to them and the importance that family sort of holds. To your, to your understanding of what family is to you, what would your definition be? I think family is anything you want it to be, right? So we all think about the traditional nuclear family and you know, mom and a dad and, and all of that. But that's not necessarily the family that works out for people, right? For a variety of different reasons. But you can put together a group of people that you love and cherish and they support you. That can be um, sometimes even more fulfilling than your family of, of origin. So it's really whatever folks decide they want it to be. Mm -hmm. And taking out the whole idea of the nuclear family or even adding that in, do you think that family still holds the same importance as it did, say, 10, 10 20 years ago? Uh, I certainly hope so. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence that it that suggests it is just as important now as it's ever been in the past. And, and I can give you all kinds of reasons why I think that, starting off with the fact that when a family comes to us for treatment, uh, I've never seen a more motivated group of people than parents who are worried that their child is going to commit suicide. They are absolutely willing to do anything possible for their child. Every parent that I've ever known would happily throw themselves in front of a moving train if they thought that was going to benefit their child. The, the bond between parents and kids seems so strong and so unique to me. You know, we, we use the word love, and that means all kinds of different things. You can love a partner, you can, you can love your pet, you can love a book that you just read. But the love we have for children is different than any kind of other human experience that I can think of that is so incredibly powerful. When, when we all think about later in life, when we're close to the end of our lives, we, we all basically, I think, kind of envision the same thing 
tell me if this is true of you, that we're lying in bed, you know, we're close to the end, and who is there with us? Our loved ones, you know, people that we care about. Our children are holding our hands, and, and we're talking about how much we love each other. That That's such a powerful image in my mind. Another example of how strong the bond is between kids and their parents is, you know, Flight 93, the airliner that was hijacked on 9-11. The first thing those folks do when they figured out what was going on, it wasn't rushing the cockpit. That came a little bit later. The first thing they did is they all got on their phones. And they called whoever, whichever loved one happened to answer and, hi, I love you. This is what's going on and you mean so much to me. When you're in a situation like that, that's the first thing you, the only thing you think of is your family. You don't think to call your boss. You don't think to call, I don't know, to turn off your power. You, you think to call your family and it's it's undeniable. And, and so, yes, we, we have all of these reasons to conclude that family is just as powerful now as it was at any time in human history. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, when it comes to that, there's, I completely understand that. I know that everyone has a huge connection. For me, it's, it's sad at the fact that when it comes to the dire stage or something happening, say, your child is in the hospital or your parents are in the hospital. That's the time that we somehow all gather together. And for me, like knowing that that's the only time that family really holds that importance is a really sad thing to sort of consider. And knowing that at the end of the day, they're going to be there. But at the same time, when you need them in a way you still have to go to a dire need in order like in order for them to really realize that you are going to be that you do need help or that you do need them there so especially when it comes to your field when parents recognize the fact that they come to that they need to go to a psychologist or they need to talk to someone the signs before that are overlooked to some extent overlooked or not noticed, or not even there, right? I, I think the average parent is pretty dialed into their kid, right? They may not see everything, and they certainly are going to miss some things. But I think for the most part, again, given the current climate, how scary everything is for parents and how big of an epidemic it, it is for kids going through very different mental health challenges, I, I do think parents want to do their best to be there for their kids. Um, and but yes, you're absolutely right. Sometimes they miss things, or sometimes kids are keeping things so quiet from them that there's nothing for them to see in the first place. Um, but it, it is a problem, and you know everybody I think is just doing their best to get through the situation, even though sometimes the choices or decisions that we make as parents are imperfect. And in hindsight, we wish we had done this or we'd wish we'd done that, but. As I said, I think every parent that I've ever met really wants to do the best thing for their kid, even though sometimes that's difficult. Mm-hmm. And now talking about the early signs, what are some signs that families can sort of recognize when their child or their adolescent is going through some issues with their mental health? There's all kinds of things you can look for. So first and foremost, what you'd want to keep an eye out for is any obvious change in their behavior or their behavior pattern. 
Um, you know, are they less communicative? Do they appear either more stressed, more agitated, more depressed, more anxious? Are they spending more time in their bedroom, particularly if they're spending more time in their bedroom on a device? Um, the, the problem with teenagers, obviously, is they are very moody creatures sometimes. So variations in their mood can happen minute by minute, honestly. So it'd be kind of hard to figure out, is this a teenager who's just going through something, not a big something, but just something? Or is this something that's more serious that I should pay more careful attention to? I, I think the best antidote is you keep the lines of communication open. You do your very best to have conversations, not just when they're struggling, but when things are actually going pretty well for them. Um, you take time out of your day each day to focus just on them and to have a, a peaceful, loving exchange about anything, not just stuff that's going on in their lives, but stuff that's going on in your lives as well. So look for changes in their typical behavior pattern, um, particularly changes that last over a period of time, a week or two weeks or three weeks, then very likely something is happening. Now, whether they'll open up to you and tell you what that thing is, is anybody's best guess, but that's the time you should lean in a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. So holding a lot of the family conversations that sort of come about, there's not a lot of focus as as much as we try to focus and advocate for mental health and especially children's mental health in this day and age there's still that there's still some households where they don't really talk about mental health they don't really think of it as being such a huge focus how can families reduce the the stigma that mental health holds within their own household well i i can speak from my experience, this generation of kids, Gen Zs, and then the younger kids that are coming up just behind them, Gen Alphas, there's never been a, a group of young people that are more dialed into mental health, certainly never in my lifetime. It, it's all over the place. It's talked about at school. It's talked about on social media. It's, it's in whatever social media platforms that they spend the most time on. This is also the generation that it started to adopt much of the language of mental health. They talk about being triggered. They talk about experiencing trauma. I, I think if you go back 20 or 30 years ago, certainly even farther back than that when I was a kid, nobody in my family ever talked about mental health <laughs> or how was I doing, or even the fact that people can sometimes experience depression. It just wasn't even considered. But if you fast forward to now, these kids are all over it. And I think parents can to be more dialed into that as well, because this change in our culture hasn't just affected kids, it's affected adults in the same way, particularly since COVID. There are so many more conversations now about taking care of yourself and going to see a therapist if that's what you need. Um, Self-care has become a big thing all over the place that people talk about quite a lot, which is really great, I think. So I, I, I think that, yes, there are still parents and families where mental health uh, is not a common topic of conversation. Um, but I, I think that's changing, and, and I think, thankfully, the world is moving in a direction that is good for everybody, not just parents, but kids as well. Mm -hmm. There is another sort of stigma that has gone about, and I know uh, plenty of my friends who still sort of have that. It's the idea of going to a therapist, the idea of acknowledging that they do need some outer help especially in families, especially when it comes to families not really wanting to, uh, why should I go talk to a stranger about my problems or why should we go to a 
see a therapist in order to sort of get help, what would be some of the ways to sort of open up their comfort about going to a therapist, about going to actually just talking to someone? Well, I, I, I think what I would probably say to somebody who said to me, what's the point of going to see a therapist? I think people go see therapists for all kinds of different reasons, right? It doesn't have to be because there's some huge thing that folks are contending with. Sometimes it's nice just to be able to go find somebody who will listen to you for an entire hour. They just be warm and empathetic and really pay attention to nothing but what's going on with you. Um, usually what gets people into therapy, in my experience, almost all of the time, actually, is they're having some struggle in a relationship of some kind, whether that's with their partner or with their kids or with their, their boss or their friends or whoever. You know, relationships are so important to all of us, but when they go wrong, it's very, very distressing to people. So if someone says, why would I get into therapy? Because we can help you with this stuff. We're pretty good at certain things. And, you know, therapy, the notion of therapy has been around for over 100 years now, and we only get better and better at it. So, okay, you know, does it hurt to go and talk to somebody who might be able to offer you some good advice or at least a good ability to listen to you? Um, it, it's actually, I find kids that are more reluctant to go into therapy than adults because the kids have a lot of misconceptions about what it is. The first misconception many of them have is that going to see a therapist makes them crazy or that there's something seriously wrong with them. And so they're avoidant. They don't want to come into therapy because they're worried that somebody is going to out them basically. The other misconception they have is they don't really know what happens in therapy. I mean, they see a little bit of it at movies maybe, but they don't have a good sense of what's supposed to happen in the, in the room. And so they're really, really scared of it. So uh, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to talk to somebody about my problems. And I don't really know what I would talk about in the first place. So we get a lot of that, as I'm sure most therapists do. There, there are some kids that are completely ready for the idea, and they come into their first session and they're completely ready to work. They're just down for the whole thing. I think you have kids who it's like, nope, I don't want to be here. This is my parents making me come. Nothing wrong with me. Uh, I don't think this is what I want to do for the next hour. So you get a whole range of different things. And probably most folks are somewhere in between. Most kids I know are somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the collaboration between families and even schools when it comes to mental a child's mental health what are some of the challenges and how can families sort of collaborate with schools to help a child with mental health challenges well here here's the situation that we're in i've already mentioned mental health epidemic and these are not my words this is how it was termed by our our u.s surgeon general we are in the middle of a mental health epidemic and most folks think that that epidemic began right about the time that COVID came around, but that's not really true. It actually began in the year 2008, 2009. So if you look at the data on all of this going back then, kids were kind of doing okay for the most part. And then what happened 2008, 2009, you started to see the sharp increases in depression, hopelessness, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. So we're getting close to year 15 of this thing. And to my knowledge, there is no indication whatsoever that we're coming out of this. I, I don't know how long it's going to last, but I suspect we'll be facing this crisis for some time to come. The reason we're in this is because there are a number of cultural society things that occurred in the last 10, 15 years 
that are having a great negative impact on the well-being of children. Um, first and foremost, the biggest contributor to the epidemic is with smartphones. And if you look at where the uptick of depression and anxiety self-harm began, the reason 2007, 2008 is so important is because that's when the iPhone came out. And the first year or two of that, most kids didn't get iPhones in their hands. Parents could afford it, but they couldn't. But from that point forward, 2009, 2010, the majority of kids had iPhones or the equivalent. So the devices have played a significant role of, in all of this. And there are a number of contributing factors related to devices, things as simple as the number of hours you spend on your phone or your tablet each day um, has a great correlation with the onset of depression. For each additional hour on a device, there's an increased risk of depression of 13%. So that's what I call a dose-related effect. So the longer you're on these things, the greater the probability you're, you're going to develop some sort of a mental health condition. Um, the average teenager currently, at least in the U.S., spend somewhere between six and eight hours a day on a device of some kind. The generally considered safe zone for being on your phone or being on your tablet for kids is about two to three hours per day. So you can see they're well above that. So that's the first problem. What devices do is they, um, they produce what's called a crowding out effect. Crowding out means you're spending so much time doing this one thing that it crowds out other wellness enhancing behaviors, which would be obvious things like spending time with your family, <laughs> reading a book, going for a walk, doing your homework, getting some exercise, those things fall by the wayside because these devices are so interesting and addictive that the average kid does not have the ability to resist that kind of temptation. Most kids don't have the maturity, some do, but most kids don't have the maturity after they've been on their phone four or five hours to put it down and say, I think I need to go for a walk. Every so often you get that, but not very often. Um, and there are a number of other things that I could talk about as well. It's almost an entirely different podcast. There's um, social contagion, behavioral contagion. What that means essentially is when you're in a relationship with somebody who also has a mental health condition, say the other person is depressed, you are far more likely to become depressed yourself simply because you're in a relationship with that. And oddly, they're, they're, the effect of that is three degrees of separation. So not only will you be more depressed, but so are your friend, friend, friend. That's how far out it goes before the effect begins to dissipate. And your friend, friend, friend don't know your friend. They're in a completely different social network. Behaviors are contagion. If teenagers are in relationships with other people who are not talking to their parents, also spending a ton of time on devices, not doing their homework, they're not going to school or barely going to school, or hurting themselves, for example, they're far more likely to do that. And devices open the, the door to all of those kinds of social interaction. Uh, sleep is a big issue among kids. Kids are often up late at night, very late at night, talking or communicating or messaging to the point where they're not going to bed at a decent time. So the vast majority of teenagers I work with are massively sleep deprived. They're just not getting enough sleep. When I don't get enough sleep, I'm irritable. <laughs> My mood is low. And those kids often will then not get up to an alarm. They'll fight with their parents. Lots of conflict and tension in the morning. And then they start their day off in the worst way possible. So devices are a leading contributor to this. And any kind of a solution to the mental health crisis needs to focus on devices. And what I tell parents is don't wait for the government to figure all this out. To somehow make Instagram or Snapchat safer for your kid or TikTok, you have the power to intervene on this right now today in your own home. You can limit the amount of time your kids spend on devices. entirely doable. You can get kids off the devices with a little bit of upset from them, but not a huge amount. So if we're going to get through this mental health condition, 
parents play a significant role in all of this. There is going to need to be a collaboration between parents, therapists, schools, and the community at large. I've written a book that's just about to come out it's called Family-Focused Treatment for Child and Adolescent Mental Health, A New Paradigm. And in the last chapter of the book, I outline an 18-point strategic plan on how to get us out of this mental health crisis, and everybody plays a role in this thing. There's a large part of that chapter devoted to just what parents can do starting today, what therapists can do starting today, what schools can do starting today. The, the big mistake I think so far all of us have made in addressing this problem is most of what I read in my news feed talks about hiring more therapists or training more therapists, which is obviously a good thing to do. Everybody who needs a therapist should have a therapist. The problem is those are downstream interventions. You already have a problem developed by that point. What I'm talking about are more upstream interventions, interventions that focus on prevention, so that if you do this upstream, you're gonna, you don't need as many therapists. Therapists are just fixing something that's already been a problem. But I think if we focus our energy not so much on that, but on what we could do before kids develop a problem, I think we're going to get the most bang for our buck. Hiring more therapists is, you can liken that to solving the gun problem in the United States by hiring more emergency room physicians. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yes, people need physicians, but that's what you, you spend an awful lot of time and expense doing that, but why are people shooting themselves? Why are guns so readily available to everybody? Why don't we pick that into the problem? They think it's true with mental health. We can hire a bunch of therapists, and we should. But that's not really where our energy needs to be focused. And I think that's where the mental health community has not gotten this right, which is we're on board with it. Yeah, more therapists. Hold on. There's other things we can do that I think would be a lot more helpful. So that was a long answer. So it has to be a collaboration between parents, schools, the community, and the mental health community, too. <laughs> No, it's very true. And I, I, I am really glad now as an adult that I, one, didn't have a phone as a kid or had like the simple phone to call mom and dad to come pick me up after school or any emergencies like that. But I'm glad I didn't have smartphones. Even though they were available, I still wasn't allowed one at that point. And I'm really glad as a teenager that I wasn't allowed one because I could not imagine the amount of focus that I would have given that. Um, just this small little box and just imagine as a teenager that I would have given my 100% to that and hoping that it would keep me communicated with the world that was around me. Absolutely. I don't know a ton about your parents other than the way you told me, but I love your parents. They kept you off a device. <laughs> single best thing they could have done for you in your adolescence and your own well-being. I think that's great. And they're designed to be addictive. They're engineers so that you stay stuck on them. It doesn't really care that you're stuck on it. It wants you, though, to flash as much to flash as much advertising in front of you as it possibly can. There's a great documentary called The Social Network, and it interviews a bunch of the engineers at Instagram and Facebook and whatnot. And what they say is, I'm not going to give my kid a cell phone when they're 13 or 14. That I know how these things work. I know how the algorithms work. And there's no way I would put one of these devices in the hands of my own children. And that is very powerful to me. The rest of us, well, what do we know about any of this? Parents think, I need to give my phone. Everybody has a phone. They really want a phone. And then kids are in darkened bedrooms going from here to there on the internet or saying all kinds of things. And parents are usually not as technologically savvy as their kids. So they don't really know what to do about this. But all of these are points of intervention. You, you can limit screen time, as I said. You can also do a great job monitoring where your kids are going virtually who they're talking to, what they're saying, 
And knowing all of that gives you an opportunity then to step in and intervene. There's a great third-party app called Bark. And what Bark does is it sends text alerts to parents when it uh, sees kids messaging in which there is problematic content. Problematic content would be get high or sneak out or hurt myself. And then it sends a snippet of that text exchange right to the parent's phone and they can read that. And then it can go into the kid's bedroom and say, what's this? We got to talk about this. We first started working with a family with a girl who was imminently suicidal. She tried many times and she was determined to do it. And we recommended that that family install Bark on their phone. And the first week after it was installed, they got an alert saying, I took all the ibuprofen from their medicine cabinet. I'm going to take it after they fall asleep. Wow. Mm-hmm. And parents went into her bedroom. Give me the ibuprofen. That, I, I'm absolutely certain that girl would have taken her life that night if not for the parents' ability to step in and do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I love the idea. I especially love the way that apps are now inventing so many different ways to to control a child's digital well-being and also like limit the amount of screen time, limit the apps, the amount of times that they're allowed to open the app. I know that there's one, um, there's one app that I downloaded a, a bit of last year and tried it out uh, for a, a uni university project. And it was this app where it got you, you could only open every app 10 times. So each app you can only open a certain amount of times each day. And you could limit to how many times you open it. So I set mine to 10. So I opened it 10. And the minute that I, I think it was around, I reached midday, I had opened it 10 times already and used up the entire for the day. And it was such a, yeah, it was such a great alert for my brain to be like, wow, I opened this. It's already, it's not even lunchtime yet. And I've already opened it this amount of times. I've already used up the amount of times I was supposed to. And it was such a great realization. So I'm like, there's so many apps that are so good to counter a lot of the digital use that we're using. And I love the idea of Bark. However, I will sort of relate it to the question, to the next question that I want to ask when it comes to the privacy and the boundaries. So how can we maintain the boundary and how also does the app Bark, for example, how does it not cross the boundary for a child's privacy, but also keeping the parents a little bit more alerted? It's an important question you're asking, and there are so many facets to it. So I'll just speak to Bark. I'll start with that one. So Bark only alerts parents to content that has been predetermined by Bark to be worrisome, right? So if you're goofing with your friends and talking about stupid things that are just funny and unimportant. Bark doesn't tell parents about that. Bark will only tell parents about something that most parents probably would agree that they would want to know about if their kid was actually saying that thing to somebody. So Bark is a, is a great, great idea because the kid is still afforded quite a bit of privacy, but not privacy in areas where they shouldn't have privacy. And if you have a teenager who is doing well, Right, so they're a decent student, and they're going to school every day. You know, their mood seems pretty good. They have a good social life, and they're connected to uh, at least one or more positive peers who seem to be those that will build kids up. Right, um, they're helping out around the house. They're if you go in and you say, "Hey, come hang out with us a little bit," they go, "All right," and then they come out and they do that. I don't think that kid needs to be monitored nearly so tightly. I really don't, because they're, they're just. 
they're doing everything a parent would want them to do. I think those kids should be afforded a little bit more privacy online. But that is not the kid that I work with. <laughs> Most definitely not the kid that I work with. I work with kids who have serious problems. And I can tell you with a fair amount of certainty, just about all of them are going on their phones and getting themselves into all kinds of trouble. And when families first come to us, it is the rare parent when I ask, how much time is your, your kid spending on a device? The vast majority of parents saying, well, it's unlimited. Very rarely does a parent say, well, we got this dialed in pretty well. So they only get two hours a day after they've gotten their homework done. And, you know, we have all kinds of parental controls put on their phone. You know, they're, they're pretty restricted. I don't hear that very often. And I think there's a high correlation between, because these kids are coming to me with serious problems, they're also mostly kids who are allowed unmonitored, unrestricted time on their devices. That, and I feel very strongly about this. If your kid has a serious mental health condition, you absolutely need to get on top of what they're doing with their phone and their tablet. And that means reducing the amount of time that they're on it and installing some kind of third-party app that monitors their content. And I don't feel like that's an invasion of privacy at all. I feel like that's a necessary step to keeping kids alive, right? So I, I, don't, I don't hedge on that one at all. Now, in general, yes, you want to give your kids some privacy. So I don't know. Say they come home from school and they're obviously they obviously have something going on. They're just, you know they're not themselves. Their their mood seems off. I think you should talk to them and ask them. Hey, you don't seem quite like yourself today. Anything going on? And if the kid says no, or yeah, but I don't really want to talk about it. I don't think you should press the point, right? Because I know this about kids. The harder you push to get information out of a teenager, the harder they work not to give it to you. You just get into this back and forth that's frustrating on both sides. But to say, okay, well, if you change your mind and you want to talk to me about whatever it is, because I can see it's something, I would love it if you would consider doing that. If you decide that this is something that you'd rather do with on your own, I respect that. And I have every confidence, whatever it is, that you'll be able to navigate it in a pretty successful way. So I'm here if you need me. That, that would be, I think, an appropriate response to a kid who's going through something but not something huge. Right, they're not hurting themselves. They're not hanging out with kids who also hurt themselves or have substance abuse problems or, you know, break the law. You know, so yes, give your kids privacy, but to a point. We live in a very different world now than it was when we were growing up. Um, you, back then, my my parents, that generation, they weren't very dialed into what kids were doing. They didn't spend a lot time talking to me about who I was spending time with and what I was doing, or not my parents anyway. My parents erred too far on the side of not being in tune with what I was doing. They gave me way too much privacy and too much independence. And fortunately, I was a pretty good kid, not a great kid, because I did all kinds of things that I'm sure my parents wouldn't have approved of. None of them horrible, thankfully. But I think now sort of the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of, well, you know, it's your privacy and it's your phone and you have a right to do whatever you want with your phone or speak to. No, you don't think that's true. I think, yeah, find a middle path and there are some places that makes sense. But at some point, if the pendulum is too far in either direction, you're going to have some kind of a problem that I think is entirely avoidable. Mm-hmm. No, I think I agree. And I, I'm so glad that I asked that question because I know there's so many people. I mean, as a kid, I'd probably be like, I'm allowed my freedom. I'm allowed the privacy. I'm allowed to not tell them what I'm doing and up to all the time. But as an adult, like after going through that teenage phase, as I get older now, I'm sort of just like, I'm glad that they they wanted to know what I was up to. And they kept asking, even though I said, oh, I'm fine, I'm doing okay. Or I just completely avoided the question. 
there was that idea that I knew that they were still there, that they were still asking, yeah. that they still really did want to know. I completely agree. Now, if you have a kid who's accustomed to unlimited screen time without any kind of monitoring at all, 15 or 16, and a parent decides they maybe want to make some changes and reduce the number of hours and put on some sort of monitoring software, no kid is going to go quietly into the night. They're, they're, and you sit down and have the conversation, well, here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. No kid in the world is going to say, I think that's a fabulous idea. I just, you know, I've been wondering whether it's good for me to spend so much time on my phone. I've been asking myself, when are you going to come and help me with this? No kid says that. Kids say, what? You're doing what? No. Oh, oh no. Over my dead body. No, just, I, I, this is my phone and it's my right. And I, I should be able to not have you look over my shoulder when I'm talking to people. I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> And the kids that I work with, they come up with an even more convincing argument, which is if you try to do that, I'm going to kill myself. And that's a showstopper. Mm -hmm. And many of our kids say that to their parents. And what happens to the parents, as you might imagine, first of all, it scares the heck out of them. And secondly, they back off. Well, I, I, I don't know if I should make them do their homework because they tell me they're so depressed and that it makes them even more depressed. I don't. I I can't take their phone because they threatened suicide. Now, what am I supposed to do? Um, and and kids say, you know, why would you limit my contact with my friends? You know, I'm depressed. Isn't one of the good things that you use to help somebody with depression is time with their friends? Why would you take this away from me? So these are all the very convincing arguments mm -hmm. that kids make, especially to our parents. And our job is to kind of blow that stuff up, which is, yes, I love you to spend time with your friends, but the friends you're spending time with now are the ones who seem to be grinding you down. And I think these folks that you are in relationships with are affecting your mental health not in a good way. So you don't have to agree with me on this, but here's what we're going to do. And I know you're not going to like it, but this is what we're going to do. And just a caveat mm -hmm. there, if you're a parent listening to this and you have a kid who is threatening self-harm or talks about suicide, do not, under any circumstances, try to go in and begin regulating their devices without professional help. It is far too dangerous to do that. So, But if you're listening and you're trapped in that same situation I just described where you've backed off of just any kind of limit setting with your kids because you're worried about what they're going to do, that absolutely needs to be changed. And find a good, competent therapist who can walk you through the steps teach you how to do that in a very, very safe way, but you got to get back to good. In the situation where you're not, you know, being parental anymore and setting reasonable limits and expectations, you got to get yourself out of that mess because if you don't, that situation is just going to get worse and worse and worse and your kid's mental health is going to continue to decline even further. That's just the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And say when it comes to communication, how does the improved communication contribute to a supportive environment for children and teenagers who are, who are going with mental health issues? It, it helps in a million different ways, right? So a, a, a family that communicates well, a family that not just communicates well, but solves problems in a peaceful way or a collaborative way, problems that parent families that can sit down and have conversations about things that could lead to conflict without it necessarily escalating into conflict. Parents who are dialed into their kids who are affectionate and loving and attentive, but also parents who set reasonable limits with their kids when kids make decisions that are not okay. 
that is a well-functioning family. And I've done all kinds of research that talks about the correlation between how well a family functions and the severity of the child's mental health condition. So a large part of treatment, which is one of the other reasons we do a family-based form of care, is to improve family functioning. So a well-functioning family is a buffer against mental illness. And communication is an essential ingredient in a well-functioning family. So, so think about bad communication. Bad communication is, I don't know, pick anything. Kids stop doing their homework. Now they're getting all Fs, right? So naturally, parents would want to sit down and have a conversation about this. But the minute they start to raise it as a topic of conversation, the kid says, get the F out of my room, or start screaming at their parents, or goes silent and says nothing. There's zero communication taking place. Uh, there is nothing that can be said that's helpful because, you know, there's no way communicating with each other anymore. But you can teach parents how to get through situations like that when kids are telling them to get out of their room or screaming at them or cursing at them or kids who shut down altogether. There's all kinds of strategies and techniques parents can learn to push through that situation in a gentle but effective way. So when folks are talking to each other, and can listen and take turns and have those discussions in a calm, well-regulated way, that's a buffer against Because what, what that does is it naturally brings kids closer to their parents. And, and in many of the families that I work with, there's so much disconnection that has occurred within the family. People have pulled away from each other. And usually because that's so much behavioral stuff that's going on that's sitting between them. So people want to naturally get close. Parents want to be close to their kids. Kids want to be close to their parents, but you get junk sitting in the way. And so that disconnection, that actually fuels the mental health condition. It makes it worse. The families who scream at each other, who don't have any idea how to collaborate or solve problems or meet in the middle, or parents who maybe use punishment or consequences in a heavy-handed way, that has a negative effect on kids' mental health. They think they're doing the right thing, but they're doing way too much of something to the point where it's not working for them anymore. Well, parents on the other side of the equation have a really hard time setting limits. They just they have a hard time saying no. They have a hard time standing their ground and just being firm in a reasonable way, right? All of these things contribute to the mental health challenges. It's not just the external influences that are having a negative effect on kids, but many of those external influences then can have a negative effect on how the family functions. And good treatment, what it looks like, is being able to mitigate these situational influences from as many different angles as you possibly can. So you you improve family functioning, you mitigate screen time, you talk about other things that are happening to kids that are completely independent of screen time. For example, this generation of teenagers has, has been asked to do far less than previous generations. So fewer kids are, are helping out around the house, fewer kids are getting part-time jobs in the summer, few kids are getting their driver's license. And what happened, I think, is you have parents who are very well-intentioned who, who are so dialed into their kids. But what comes with that, sometimes that style of parenting is also a lack of basic expectation. Yeah, you gotta help out around the house because that's what people do. You really do need to get your driver's license because that's just part of becoming independent. And a part-time job brings so many good things to kids in terms of growth and their maturity. All these things build resilience. And this is a generation of kids, not all of them obviously, but many of them are just not particularly resilient people because not a lot's been asked of them. You know, they've been so sheltered and protected that they've been denied, denied the opportunity to experience hard things. And we grow in hard spaces. 
right? The, the way you build mm-hmm. self-confidence is not by avoiding difficult situations, it's by putting yourself in difficult situations and getting good at mastering them. That's what builds confidence over time. So we got that external influencing going on as well with the current generation of kids, and that has made its own contribution to the mental health crisis. So many things going on. That's why I'm such a strong advocate of family therapy or family-based treatment. That's not how the mental health community works or not how it works in the United States. The way it works in the United States is there's a bias towards individual therapy or individually focused therapies. So the kid is sent to a therapist hoping that the therapist can do or say something that's going to help that kid. That is, in in many cases, a, a largely ineffective intervention. And I can say this with some confidence because I've done a lot of individual therapy with kids before I finally realized this is not helpful. This is not what I need to be doing. Now, kids with more mild and moderate mental health conditions, yeah, individual therapy is fine. But kids who have serious mental health conditions, that is the wrong treatment. And in many cases, it is not effective. All of the kids that come to us have been in years of individual therapy, or they're on medication, mm-hmm. which is another individually focused treatment, or they've been in hospitals or residential treatment programs. Again, individually focused treatment. It, I, I say this often, it's not a kid's problem, problem to solve. It's a family problem to solve. The kid exists within the context of this family and exists within the context of these broader social situations. The kid is just trying to get by and they're hurting and they're suffering. It, it, it takes a community, it takes a village. And the people who are best positioned to help kids are not therapists. It's not school mental health counselors, it's their parents. And when you show parents the light on how to do that, kids blossom and they thrive. So that's why I think family-based treatments are so important. Mm-hmm. No, especially when it comes, when you're talking about um, that supportive environment, I think we were talking about the grades, for example, I really wish growing up that it wasn't such a big focus and such a big conversation on grades. And there was that whole idea of, oh, I don't want you to have a job throughout high school because I want you to focus on school. I want you to focus on studying. But that also led me to so many difficulties as I got older because I was also, um, backstory to that, I was also homeschooled as a, in my high school years. So there was that whole lack of social um, understanding, a whole lot of social conversations that I missed throughout high school and without like sort of just focused on home because they wanted me to focus on school. They wanted me to focus on studying and get better grades. But there was that idea that I didn't grow up knowing a whole lot because I lacked that social stance. I lacked the independence that a lot of people in in high school usually would have gotten when it comes to getting a job or working and balancing work in school. So there was a whole lot of different set of expectations where they focused on one thing but never really had um, any understanding of how important the other sides were to being more independent. I completely agree. And if it helped at all for me to say this to you, Dina, I think your social skills are really good. So you made up for lost time, clearly. So I don't think I have anything to worry about in that department. <laughs> what, what, what I would have said to your parents if they'd asked me the question, well, we, we want our daughter to focus on her academics and, and that's why we don't want her to get a part-time job. To them, I would say, why can't you do both? Right? And well, why can you only do one yeah. or the other? You know, think about the people that you know that are go-getters that they're constantly getting stuff done. They're pretty good at, at multitasking. I, I, I think it's a mistake for parents 
to drop the bar of expectation down to here. Well, you know, they can only probably do this. I, I think, well, what I've learned about human beings is if you drop the bar of expectations down here, people give you that and nothing else, right? They'll meet the bar, but they're not going to go beyond that. But raise the bar of expectations, make it super, super high. And yeah, the kid is going to struggle and sometimes they're going to fail and sometimes it's going to be difficult and stressful. But like I said, that's how we evolve. And so you raise the bar of expectations and kids are going to meet that, right? So yes, <laughs> kids can get good grades and have a part-time job. There are a million examples of that, hundreds of millions right, throughout the entire planet where people can do these things. So don't sell your kids short. Ask a lot of them, but also at the same time, provide them with enough support and affection and love where if they do start to fall, you can catch them again and prop them back up. But, but don't sell your kids short. Yeah. See, I wish I wish my parents knew that when they were raising me throughout teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now we're going to be going into some of our practice and habits and some of your practices that you do in your household as well. Now, what is a practice that you do to create a home environment that fosters your child's mental health? Well, I'm happy to say I have four wonderful daughters and they range in age now from 19 to 29, almost 30. And so they're growing up, they're adults now, but I can tell you what I did, which is I'm a great believer in what's known as gentle parenting, uh, a, a soft approach most of the time. Um, I, and, and I teach this to parents, which is, I don't think there's ever a reason to raise your voice with kids. Not that people don't do that sometimes, but I believe you can get through the entire parenting experience with either never doing that at all or doing it on a very rare basis. And and sometimes when I say that to people, they the first thing they say is that's impossible, or I might, or they'll say my kid doesn't listen to me until I start yelling, which is a really common thing. And that is true. There there are many families where kids don't listen until their parents start yelling, but that's all backward, right? So. If you ask a kid nicely, reasonably, gently to do something and they don't do it, well, then you're probably going to ask them again and then you're going to ask them again and now you're going to get frustrated. And instead of asking nicely, you're going to raise your voice or speak in a, a harsher way. And kids do then sometimes do the thing that was asked of them when the parent finally lights up in a, in a big enough way. But you've taught your kids to ignore the nice voice. The, the first four or five times in a reasonable way you ask them to do something, they're not paying attention to that voice. Because they know that parents aren't serious when they use that voice, but when they yell, they're very serious, and so it gets the job done. So you're teaching kids to do your kids to do the wrong thing. You want them to listen to the gentle voice and do the thing you ask them to do, which is entirely doable. There's a million strategies that you can implement to get kids to do what's asked the first time, or maybe the second time at the very most. What what yelling does is if you yell at a kid and then they comply, you've been reinforced for yelling. You've just been taught that yelling will get the job done which means you're far more likely to yell again. One of the other problems with yelling is it makes everybody feel terrible. Parent feels bad for yelling. Kid feels bad for being yelled at. It's just not an effective way to get kids to do what's been asked of them. So gentle parenting means you make a really firm commitment to not raising your voice. You're matter of fact, you're calm and then you implement the strategies that are necessary to bring about the task completion, doing the dishes, doing your homework, speaking to you in a respectful way. Um, and there's so many things that parents can be taught to do exactly that. What I tell parents is if you could get them to do the thing you asked them to do the first time, would you be mad? 
Does that make you angry? And they say, well, no. I said, exactly. So let me teach you how to get that dishwasher unloaded the first or second time that you ask. There's nothing to get mad about. And then parents feel like they're, they have a lot more authority, a lot more control. And the kids do better with that anyway, because again, they don't like being yelled at. And secondly, it's good for people to do what is asked of them. That's just part of normal family life. If I ask you to do your homework, I kind of like you to do your homework. And so I'm a great believer in gentle parenting. And that is a strategy I use throughout my entire young adulthood, raising my daughters. And I'll ask my daughter this question, maybe daughter's the question sometimes, do you remember yelling at you? And invariably, nope, <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Yay. So I, I was able to pull off what I teach everybody. And I learned that very early in mental health. I worked with kids in inpatient units who had just very, very serious behavior problems. I learned you can never raise your voice with those kids because whatever they were doing, they're going to do twice as hard as soon as you get mad and yell. So I, I embraced this idea fully. So what's the strategy, the ingredient to being a good parent and raising health, healthy, loving kids is you're nice to them all the time. You don't raise your voice to them. You have high expectations of them behaviorally, as I said. And so, you know, with all of my girls, um, if I did ask them to do something, I, I think it became clear from the time they were little babies that, I mean, I, yes, you got to do the thing and I'm going to be super nice about it. But if you don't do the thing I ask, then um, I'm probably going to be a little more direct with you. And if that doesn't get the job done, then I'm probably going to come up with some reasonable consequences that I think will incentivize you. One of the most powerful incentives you can use with a teenager who refuses to do something is, well, I'm going to ask you to put your phone up on the counter then until you get it done. Super powerful. Um, works almost every time. Uh, it doesn't work quite as well when you have kids who refuse to give up their phone. That's kind of a different thing. But all you did is you go to your own phone and remotely shut it off. Anyway, I, I, so you're loving, you're attentive, you're kind. I use a lot of humor with kids, both my own and in my practice. I think if you can learn a kid's sense of humor, and everybody has a different sense of humor, if you can learn what that kid's sense of humor is and use it with them often, it not only gets them to laugh, which immediately elevates their mood. That's what happens when people laugh is they're not feeling crummy anymore, at least not while they're laughing. And it's also a form of connection. It's like, I know you so well that I can say something that I know you're going to find funny. It's like, it's like we're connected. It's like it's you and me right now at this moment. And what I say to make you laugh may not be the same thing that I say to your brother or your sister because their sense of humor is different. So it's playful, it's kind, loving, it's well-regulated, but it's fun when you should be firm, not in an over-the-top mean way, but just firm. You got to do the things I ask you to do. Why? Because that's just how it works in family. It just is. So I hope that answers your question. No, that did. I, I, I think gentle parenting is now where a lot of my guests are having their conversations and wanting to sort of promote a whole lot more. So I'm glad that we got to talk about it. I have to do a whole other episode on gentle parenting now yeah, because I think I'm, that's going to be such a focus. Yes, and that's actually the topic of my, my second book. And one of the things that's wrong with a lot of the books out on gentle parenting, they do a great job talking about the general side of it. But where they fall short is, well, what if you're super gentle and that dishwasher still doesn't get emptied? Or what if they're failing all of their classes? Or what if they're speaking to you in an unkind way? Gentle is not going to solve that stuff, right? Gentle is kind of your base, your default. But how do you get kids to do the things, the stuff of life and remain gentle at the same time? I don't think there's a book on that that I've read that talks about that. That's what my second book is on, is how to be kind and gentle and soft, but, but still make sure that kids understand their expectations and their responsibilities. So 
yeah, that would be a great podcast and um, I'd be here to listen to it or contribute. Yeah, no, I would love to have you on for that. I think that's such a great, I think for me, the biggest question would be how to unlearn your own parenting. Like for example, how to unlearn the fact that your parents were the ones yelling at you and how you don't want to be that for your kids. How to turn yourself from a yelling parent into a gentle parent would be such a great sort of dynamic to sort of explore. And yes, absolutely. So um, are you a parent? No, no, unfortunately, no. Okay. okay. Um, well, what I generally say to people is if you recognize that how your parents raised you is less than ideal, then you can make a commitment to yourself that you're going to do it differently. My, my own family of origin is um, my parents were good parents in many respects, but not in every respect. And I remember when I was a young kid, watching some of the things that my parents did and said, I remember making a very conscious decision at a very young age, which is, I'm not going to do that. I am not going to do those things with my kids. And that commitment was very firm. And so I think, yes, okay, you're raised in a less than ideal way. Let's just say you come from one of those families where people scream at each other all the time. If you know that's not who you want to be as a parent, it begins with a commitment to do something different. No behavior changes if you're not committed, if you're not motivated to change it. So it starts with a commitment. The second thing that needs to happen is you need to know what to do besides yelling, right? Because if that's all you know, you're going to fall back to that. So you got to learn all the various different things that are necessary to get kids to be the people you want them to be without ever raising your boys. So make a decision not to be that person. And if you're that person now as a parent and you find yourself yelling more often than you would like to, well then, okay, do something different. You can always work on change and change may not be going down from a yelling parent to a zero yelling parent, which is where I'd like every parent to be, but okay, drop it down by half. Everybody's going to benefit from that. If you can knock off half of the yelling, it's going to transform your life. And if you can do it half the time, you can probably keep working and do it three quarters of the time, 80%, 90% of the time. That's where change comes from, but with the commitment and knowing what the new behaviors are and then practicing them over and over and over to become a habit. You're yelling as a habit, you can get out of that habit. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's very true. And I think that's such a great, especially unlearning a lot of parenting styles that sort of you were born into, you were raised into. I think that's such a great, um, I should do a whole other episode on that as well, invite you on for that. I think that would be so amazing. <laughs> um, so before we end, I'd love to go into the open mic section of the show which is a chance for you to share something that you are passionate about or something that we didn't even mention in today's topic. Um, so in the last minute or so, I'd love to give you the floor and share some of your thoughts for the day. Well, I'm going to relate it back to children's mental health because that is the thing that I'm so dialed into. Um, I think we stand at a very unique moment in human history when it comes to our children and their well-being. And I think what we need is the equivalent of a mental health moonshot. If we're going to get a, ourselves out of this epidemic, we need to be doing things a whole lot differently than what we're doing now. I think um, that there should be a movement of some sort that really advocates for a coalition between parents, providers, insurance companies, and the community at large, and, and schools as well. The solution to this problem is not what we've been doing. We don't need to double down on ideas that are already not very effective. And that's what we've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. I'm a very fierce advocate of change in, in, in the respect of 
we got to figure out how to do this differently. And the technology exists. I don't mean a technology in a software sense. I mean it as the strategies, interventions, changes, they currently exist. We know what those are. We know how to pull ourselves out of this thing, but we got to be focused on the right thing. And as I said, hiring more therapists is great. That is not the solution to the problem. Getting more mental health services in the school is a great thing to do. That is not going to be a solution to the problem. We know what to do. Now we just need to band together and get the thing done. I'm super passionate about that. That is going to be my life's work for the remainder of my work. I am determined to make this thing happen. Um, and I would hope, I, I'm not familiar with the healthcare industry in uh, Australia. Is I suspect you have universal healthcare? Yes. Yes, we do. Ah, get real. Someday the United States will figure this out and do the same thing. But until then, we have private health insurance companies who are as clueless about all of this as everybody else. They, they, they can do so much good in the world by becoming much better informed about the nature of family-based treatment and advocate that their members, the insured, get that. You know, when a parent has a kid who's struggling, they reach out to their insurance company and the, the insurance company says, well, you're five therapists within our network you can go see. Not the right five therapists, not the right guild, and, and, and experienced therapists, here are the five. And that's just, that's the worst possible way to respond to a situation like that. You just throw somebody at them. And maybe the somebody's awesome. I'm not saying that they're not. But if we know family-based treatment have 40 years of documented evidence demonstrating their efficacy, why is it not a first-line treatment? Why is individual therapy a first-line treatment? Family therapy, if it's ever thought of at all, it's the second or a third or a fourth. That needs to change. Family therapy is the thing that works. But most of us don't do it, including most therapists. You'd be hard-pressed to find a family therapist. You could look and eventually find one. But there are many of them. Most therapists do individual therapy. And the reason they do this, I'm going to say it out loud, is individual therapy is a lot easier. It's a lot easier mm -hmm. to pass an hour with just white kid than to pass an hour with an angry kid and a bunch of angry parents. That's hard to do. So I think we need to change mm -hmm. the universe. We know what to do. We need to start doing it. We need to get everybody involved, and that includes insurance companies. Together, we can do this thing. But if we do it in isolation, if it continues to be siloed, we're going to look at another 10 years of mental health problems that are probably worse than what we have now. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree with that. I think there's a huge, huge problem when it comes to family. I've had so many different variations of therapists, and including play therapists who also deal in family therapy using play therapy. And there's a whole lot of conversations where we're just barely any parent actually wants to join in in play therapy because they just think it's kids playing with toys or it's kids playing with what they're interested in. But the amount of times where it's like it's communication building, it's team building, it's learning to work together, it's building on things together. So there's a lot, a lot of people who just sort of think, okay, because my child needs help, I'm going to send my child to therapy. I'm going to send them to therapy rather than sort of maybe the whole, maybe sometimes the parent can be part of the issue or can be part of the lack of communication that the child has as well. So there's a whole lot of, lot of things. Very true what you just said. Or parents maybe aren't doing anything, you know, wrong necessarily that's making the child's mental health condition worse, but they can, they can be part of the solution. There are all kinds of things that probably they can do that they're not doing simply because nobody's told them how to do it. Nobody's shown them how to do it. Um, Yes, and and again, you can focus your time on an individual kid. And the metaphor I've used many times is 
I, I guess it's a simile, actually, technically not a metaphor. It's like dropping your kid off for an oil change, right? You send them to the therapist, pick them up, and then you go pick them up, and somehow they're different. It's just, I, I promise you, as somebody who's been doing this for 40 years, I wish it worked like that. It does not. So if you really want to help your kid, particularly if they're struggling with something serious, you got to get involved. And you got to do it as a family, as I said, as a family problem to solve, not a kid problem to solve. Parents have so much ability to influence their child in a positive direction. The kid cannot do this in isolation. They, they don't know how. And a, an individual therapist working in isolation often doesn't know how either. But everybody coming together, it's hugely impactful. No, I completely agree. And I think that's such a great way, such a great takeaway for a lot of parents to listen to you today and sort of say, maybe it's, maybe you should try family therapy if individual therapy isn't working. So no, thank you so much, Paul, for coming on to the show. My pleasure, Dina. Thank you so much for asking me. No, well, thank you so much for joining. If there's a way that audience members would like to get in contact with you to discuss questions that I maybe didn't ask in depth or maybe ask questions that I have missed, is there contact information that I'm able to give out to them? I'm super easy to find. So if you just Google me, I'm pretty easy to pull up. A couple of options. One will be LinkedIn and there's, you know, all kinds of contact information, talks about my work and what I do, the, the book that's about to come out. Or you can go to our website, for intensive family focused therapy, which is my myiffft.org. So myiffft.org. Super easy to contact me there. And I welcome people reaching out. Not sure to work with me necessarily, although maybe, but if you have questions or if you're having a struggle of some kind, something's going on in your family, you need a little bit of help, where where to go to access that kind of help, I can do my very best to give you as many ideas as I possibly can. So people listening, feel free to do that. Absolutely. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me again, Paul. I think it's such a great conversation. And I maybe we'll have you on for another episode, talk about gentle parenting a bit more because it's so fascinating to me. I love it. Well, thank you, Dina. Thank you for your time. It's been a really enjoyable experience for me. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Definitely go and check out some of Paul's work. Look at his book, upcoming book coming out as well. Um, well, thank you guys so much for listening. I can't wait to show you the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives, and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.